Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. My name is Dr. Ewan Larson and today I've got an interview with a fellow GP, another doctor called John Sykes. Now John is a director and trustee with the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Now that's an organisation that's dedicated to promoting uh, aspects of health related to and prevention of disease um, where they think there's a relation to lifestyle. So it's all about physical activity, healthy diet, sleep, anything that basically could help promote uh, and reduce the impact of lifestyle factors. So we had a really good conversation and we ranged across all sorts of different areas with that. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a mo. So some other little housekeeping points before I get on to that. Um, apologies for my sound, uh, my voice today. Uh, I've got an absolute minging cold and virus, really quite unpleasant, though I think I'm coming through it. It's that time of year, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, where every other person seems to be affected at the moment. Um, and it's, um, as a, if you're experiencing it, then I'm sure you know exactly how it feels. And if not, it's a kind of, you know, it's almost ubiquitous when it comes to human nature that we all get these viruses from time to time. It's been hard work, but I have had to back off quite a bit on the exercise and physical activity this week just to give myself a chance to recover. But I'm feeling fairly relaxed about that. And like all most of these viruses, they just pass in the end without any complications. So they're just a little bump on the road. Um, in terms of sound generally, um, for the interview, I had some technical gremlins crept in with my side of the recording when I chatted to John, but um, I always keep a backup copy, so I've had to go to that. The sound on that perhaps isn't quite as clean as normal, but actually I think once I've put it through the usual processing, there isn't too much of a difference. But um, I do mention it just in case anybody out there does happen to notice. Um, otherwise, um, usual show notes can be found at blocology.io forward slash 039. Um, and don't forget, you can, of course, visit the website, sign up for the fortnightly newsletter, the Journal of Blocology. I usually just send out a short email with some evidence-based uh, tips and advice for health. In fact, this week, uh, I sent one about related to vitamin C in colds. You could tell that my recent virus is playing on my mind. Um, well, I'll give you the abbreviated version in that vitamin C doesn't really seem to make a lot of difference. But I thought it when I looked at this uh, started looking at the research again. I thought it was going to be across the board, absolutely nothing, no impact whatsoever. There is a smidgen of evidence that suggests there could be some benefit in reducing colds uh, in people who work and exercise in very cold climates. There seemed to be some reduction. Um, I th there perhaps isn't an enormous amount of evidence to be absolutely certain about that, but there were some pointers. And there is some suggestion that the evidence points towards a s very slight reduction in how long you'll have your virus or your cold for if you take a big dose of vitamin C while you've got it. But the average across the papers was something like a reduction in time of 8%. So even if you have it for a few, um, even if you have your virus for a week or so, um, it's really just a few hours. So it's difficult to know if that's really of any actual great clinical significance at all. Anyway, so um, back to the interview today with John. Um, so we talked about lots of things. We covered all sorts of areas about physical activity, high intensity interval training. We talked about nutrition um, and how we go about thinking about um, uh, what's a good diet, what's a healthy diet, what, and I, I also probed John to get the you know, to get his sense, because he's got extra qualifications in nutrition as well as being a GP. 
about the um, dietary fads that dietary fads that really push his buttons and send his blood pressure up. Uh, and I had some really interesting answers around that as well. So um, I started off as ever by just finding out a little bit more about John and got him to tell us a little bit more about his uh, involvement in physical activity and his background. Yeah, so I've always played loads of sport. I was a keen footballer as a kid. I always thought myself potentially becoming a professional footballer was never nowhere near good enough. Um, but always really enjoyed playing football for many hours a day in the schoolyard. That got into kind of cricket and rugby and other things as well. But then when I went to university, focused more on kind of just football. Um, but as a side to that, just enjoyed running when you're studying hard and you want to take a break from something, got more into other kind of forms of um, long distance stuff. So did some cycling as well. I ran a couple of marathons. And then off the back of that, when I kind of got into more hospital-based work, I actually enjoyed going to the gym, which is just kind of general strength and conditioning type stuff. And now we just kind of do a mix of all of it, really. So I still play football on a Saturday for a team. I still kind of go to the gym three, four times a week. And if you know I'm feeling anxious, I'll probably go for a run once or twice a week as well. But it's kind of dependent on schedule, kind of dependent on what I'm feeling like. I'm, I'm quite flexible with it, really. And I don't really train for any specific goals. But as long as I'm kind of keeping relatively fit with my football um, and enjoying kind of my training time, which is essentially my time to kind of zone out for everything that's going on. Um, some people describe it as your kind of mindfulness time, but I just see it as a time where I can just not focus on my work. I can't do any work. I can't see any patients. I can just be in my own zone and kind of zone out from everything. So anything which really hits that bill, really. Yeah. And do you have any, you obviously mix it right up. Do you have any specific targets in terms of amount of time per week you train? Or that sounds like that football, obviously being fit enough to manage that football is a really good marker for you in terms of giving you a good indication. Yeah, definitely. I think if I feel like I can, on a Saturday, get around reasonably well and feel like I've put in a good shift, then that's normally the good marker for me. And if I feel I'm sluggish on a Saturday, I know that maybe I need to up my training generally or get a few more runs in. But essentially, I try, if I can, to do something like, and this isn't for everyone, but I try and do one session a day. And whether that be a lifting session or a running session or my football training or whatever, try and do one a day. On very rare days, I'll get two in, but that's only for enjoyment as opposed to, you know, I think what sometimes people think is, oh, you, you know, you're just wanting to punish yourself more and push yourself even harder. But I, I honestly just see it as a, a way of relaxing. Um, and I wouldn't ever say I do your kind of high intensity interval training in that fashion. I enjoy a session like that every so often, but more for me, like exercise is a form of, of release as opposed to absolutely killing it unless it's, as I said, football training or football game. Yeah, interesting. We had an exercise scientist on the podcast a few weeks ago, Michelle Swainson, who's actually here at Lancaster, talking about high intensity interval training. And, and my initial position was, I think maybe it was 10 years old and I was very sceptical about high intensity interval training. And it, it just seemed a sort of a trendy thing to do. And uh, without and having said that, I've always done some interval training along with my running and other bits and pieces. Um, and it turns out I've been doing high intensity stuff all along. But so, oh, really? um, I, well, at least by their definition, um, yeah. So I don't. I, but I think it is. It's a uniquely painful experience, and I'm not sure I enjoy those <laughs> sessions as much as I enjoy just being out, like you describe. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I think the benefits of hit have been massively exaggerated over the last kind of five or ten years. There are some benefits for the normal weighted individual. Research shows us that actually increases your fitness, and we know that that's a pretty good marker of avoiding disease and actually having a longer life expectancy as well. But having said that, at the same time, it's not for everyone. And it's certainly not 
for everyone every day because they're exhausting sessions. For people who are already under a lot of stress, anxiety, other pressures going on, especially if they're not really feeling like they enjoy those sessions, the last thing you want to do is being saying, you know, you have to do these high intensity interval sessions because ultimately they're then not, not going to do them. Um, yeah. And for me, the best form of exercise, I mean, I say prescription, but, you know, exercise plan or exercise form for someone is one they can stick to. So if they don't really feel that they can stick to that plan, then actually, or not a plan, just stick to doing that every day or fitting it into their kind of routine. It's just not worth doing. Maybe every now and again, session with a friend, session just because you feel like letting off some steam, that's fine. I think it's more about finding what fits your likes in terms of exercise because it comes in so many different forms. I often don't like calling exercise. I'd prefer the term physical activity because there are so many different ways in which you can keep physically active. And saying physical activity sounds a lot less daunting than exercise where people automatically think of, you know, as you say, hit sessions where you're sweating loads and in a lot of pain and they're quite hard sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. We had that, I had that discussion with Brendan Stubbs, who's the, uh, re- the researcher who looks a lot into mental health and physical yeah, activity. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've come across him. Um, and we, yeah. we, we kind of were quite careful to define that difference between exercise and physical activity. And it's, a, it's an important difference, isn't it? Because, you know, you know, high intent hit stuff is, gosh, that's right in the, you know, the exercise sports performance category almost. Whereas physical activity can just be getting up and moving around and going for a kind of a, a brisk walk or, uh, you know, being, it's a very, it's a whole spectrum of activities which you otherwise wouldn't get. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I mean, the stats for kind of not being very active at all are quite scary from the UK's point of view. It's around 25% of our population are defined as being inactive. And that means they don't do 30 minutes, so three zero minutes of activity in a week, which is really pretty low. Now, just increasing that from zero or under 30 to above 30 will have huge health benefits. Maybe not so much from a weight loss perspective, but from a cardiovascular point of view, a reducing your risk of low mood, anxiety. Um, so many of these conditions are influenced by our activity levels. So actually trying to have an impact on that will, will make massive differences. And yeah, for someone who's at home who hasn't, you know, even thought about doing, you know, exercise for a while, the idea of going out for a half an hour walk is maybe a bit daunting, but 10 minutes or something, that's manageable, build that up gradually. And then ultimately, you could actually end up even hitting the guidelines. But it, ultimately, the, the guidelines aren't really the aim. It's more about just trying to do that a little bit more, push yourself a little bit harder in whatever form you feel that you can manage and fit into your schedule. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about the fact that, you know, actually sometimes the guidance, if you're physically physically active and doing a lot of exercise like you are, and I'm fairly active as well, doing a few hours per week, actually you just forget how hard it is. To even suggest going out for a 30-minute walk to somebody is an almost an unimaginable step. It is a little bit of the curse of knowledge thing, but it's the curse of habit as well, that if you're in the habit of doing that and it's normal for you, you, you're completely it's just trying to remember how hard it is to do that if you're incredibly inact if you've been sedentary and you're not used to even getting any kind of a sweat up or even just a glow from exercise you just it's a, yeah. it's a big old step isn't it yeah definitely and i think it's all about setting goals which are manageable for patients and i think motivational interviewing is something i'm very passionate about in terms of trying to help patients make those changes um and i think that can make a really big difference and just making sure that those goals that are set are ones which are achievable and working out how confident patients feel that they can actually achieve those goals. Seeing how you get on, following them up, 
trying to have a chat with them again about how things are going and just gradually building that up, I think is a manageable thing for us to do as clinicians on the NHS. It's sometimes hard to find time for it, but actually just trying to break down those barriers, make them small, manageable changes and then reviewing, I think can be one really small, easy way of us helping people make those kind of lifestyle changes, which could end up being lifelong habits. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of, I'm quite into the motivation. I find motivational interviewing through um, my work with addictions and substance misuse. That motivational interviewing is obviously a big part of that, and it is incredibly helpful. It's all about, you know, a lot of it's about empowering the individual, isn't it? So it's trying to take away that kind of strain on the doctor that they have to try to make someone better. It's about kind of giving mm. that person autonomy, and you're not then ramming some, you know, whether it's an exercise prescription, if you like, or some kind of guidance down their throat it's all about finding what works for them completely in fact we did some teaching recently at bristol university on this as part of our prevention medicine day which is all about kind of lifestyle medicine and it was amazing even just seeing a really well you know done example of motivational interviewing compared to being told what to do you know in a patient doctor scenario just seeing that straight up it's just incredible the difference the emotions it evokes in terms of just watching it and how you feel for that patient being told what to do as opposed to as you say using motivation to to empower them to want to make changes make changes off the back of that and then really feel that they can continue because once you've hit that maybe that first or first one or two goals you know that would could really inspire them to continue going with these things um maybe start with one aspect of it and then move on to another area of lifestyle and you know who knows what you can achieve yeah one of the things i really like when i'm involved in teaching students about lifestyle stuff and about habits and you know whether it's smoking or alcohol or injecting heroin into your groin whatever it is the is the, yeah. the trans theoretical model of change is that kind of little cycle and it took me a minute to remember it as i was we was as i was just talking i can never remember the name <laughs> of it um, and it's just that kind of way yeah. from pre-contemplation to contemplation to you know action to sustaining it and you can all you can ever do perhaps as a healthcare professional or as a friend with somebody else who wants to be you know if it's a, or it's a family member or it's a friend to get them active it's that motivational interviewing all you can really do is push people a little bit further around that model so somebody who's barely thinking about exercise you're not suddenly going to get them tomorrow habitually exercising every day you have to just get them into the stage where they're prepared to make a change or if they've not thought about it at all, you've got to get to the stage where they start contemplating change. So that's okay. I'll, I'll put a link up on the show notes. But that, I've always found that incredibly useful as well to actually just so that you, you target your conversations realistically to the person to find that's opposite you or you're chatting to to find out what they're really likely to want. And it's the same with injecting heroin. You can say, well, you must stop and you must be abstinent forever. But if someone doesn't really want to do that, then you might as well you might forget it. You know, you, you're not yeah, going to get definitely. anywhere. And it's the same for all yeah. of these kind of lifestyle things, isn't it? Yeah. I actually find that model really helpful because you can really look at patients and just from certain phrases that they use, you can pay, maybe work out where they are in that model. And that can really gear where your conversations go. I can look back at previous consultations where I've, if I'm being frank, I've wasted my time because I've been trying to use or tailor advice to someone who really wasn't even ready to think about change, spent maybe you know, a couple of minutes, which is gold dust in GP land, to try and help someone make some changes. They come back a couple of weeks later and they haven't even thought about making changes because I was approaching them in the wrong way because I wasn't thinking about what stage they were at in terms of thinking about the change. Um, and I think that's a real key part about motivational interviewing, working out, just using certain questions and phrases where someone might be in terms of thinking about making that change. And if you use motivational interviewing well, you can kind of get them to tell you quite easily where they're at 
And that can actually be a really good way of working out where you're going to get to or what realistic goals to set or if, if any goals are maybe approach them at a different time if, if it's not appropriate at that time yeah i think it's really i, I think i guess they're my two central pillars now of my consultation technique and that kind of um if i think about it in that in that context but i guess it works as an individual as well if you're kind of someone who's thinking well i must get you know anybody if you want to make any habit change you've got to be a bit realistic with yourself about where you are in that model of change as well you'd like to think you're at least yeah. getting to contemplation if you've got to the point about thinking about it but Sometimes it's unrealistic yeah. to kind of build a, a massive habit that you're going to run a marathon in a few weeks' time. Yeah. The physiological issues yeah. aside, if you haven't actually, um, if you haven't actually, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you haven't, you don't know where you are in that sort of side of things, and understand, have a, a decent bit of insight into yourself. So um, I must ask you, you're obviously really passionate about this, John, and you're kind of involved in the lifestyle medicine things. What, you're a GP. I know that's your kind of your trade, if you like, but you've kind of you've obviously specialised well. T- tell us a little bit about your involvement with sports and exercise medicine in the past. Uh, well, so I mean, I wouldn't even say I specialise in it. To be honest, I've um, I've looked into it and I've always been really keen. I I kind of wanted to do sports medicine from a young age. It's the reason I got into medicine in the first place. You know, I've already covered how keen I'm on being active. And when I was younger, I was told that I had a knee condition, which isn't even that severe of a knee condition, but I was told that it was something which would stop me playing sport for about two years. And for me, that was absolutely devastating. Um, but I saw a sports specialist and they were able to help me keep playing. I had to cut back on a few sports, but that really fueled my enthusiasm for helping other people kind of get fit and be able to actually keep playing their sport when they're passionate about it. So I kind of got into sports medicine more and more, went to all the conferences you know, for many, many years, really, as a student, and then also as a junior doctor working in hospitals. But I realized that all the kind of educational stuff I was going to or interested in within sports medicine was the exercise arm of sports medicine, which is using exercise as a tool for helping with reducing disease, reducing burden of disease, or even in some cases, reversing disease. And I found that was the stuff I was really passionate about. Dr. William Bird, who some uh, listeners may have heard of, kind of really fueled that. He taught me about the cellular benefits of activity and how important that is. And that really fueled my enthusiasm for it further, learning about the science behind why it's important and then the importance for all the different kind of parts of our body and how it can affect so many different parts and reduce our risk of so many different diseases. And from a public health point of view, the massive impact it can have if we can utilize it as a real tool. The phrase that's always used is kind of if, you know, exercise or physical activity could be packaged into a pill, we give it to everyone we see in the NHS. Um, and I think that's probably true, to be honest, to a certain extent. It has got such power. And the way it's thought about is maybe not the power it has for certain aspects. So people think, oh, I'm going to lose weight. Maybe I should get more active. When actually, I think we underestimate the power of activity when we just put it down to a, a weight loss tool. And actually, some of the studies show it's not even that good of a weight loss tool, but it is very good for preventing heart attacks, preventing strokes and preventing diabetes and hypertension. So yeah. let's concentrate on that a bit more. Yeah, and massively um, improving your mental health as well. Big time. I mean, mental health for me is is one of the aspects of um, kind of physical activity that's just enormous. And I find it all the time in my clinic. Now, you shouldn't just do it on your what you read. And I have read loads of research in terms of benefits for your mental health for activity but the patients who I see who come in with mental health problems who tell me they're going to get active and do get active you know I find those are the ones who often do really really well and come back and they don't want to take medications they didn't need them in the first place and they're happy not being on them or they've come off them because they didn't need them 
And there's real research to, to show that those benefits and for a number of reasons. Um, and I think those aspects of, you know, helping with mental health, when to be honest on the NHS, we are limited in what we can help with in terms of mental health. I think actually utilizing uh, a tool like exercise or physical activity is, is key. Um, and that's why, you know, your initiatives like Park Run and things like that and Walking for Health, I think are just absolutely fantastic. And I try and promote them wherever I can, really. And this whole, the Royal College of General Practitioners linking up with Park Run to have this initiative, I think is, is excellent. And I hope that that would continue to be pushed. Um, so I do think that that just, that combines so many aspects of lifestyle as well. You've got the physical activity, you've got the community aspect of this, and you're essentially into a group of people who automatically are good friends almost for life. Um, and it's a self-run group. So yeah, I mean, I could talk about Park Run a lot. But I, I say again, from a physical activity point of view, from a mental health side of things, it's enormous and something that we really need to continue to utilise. Uh, we had Simon Tobin on um, GP oh, yeah. about talking about Parkrun a few weeks ago. And um, gosh, it ticks all the boxes, you know, that kind of physical activity, but it also bundled up in a commu- grassroots community organisation addressing loneliness and kind of have it, the yeah. social interactions part of it, but all completely grassroots. So there's no kind of profit motive at all. It just, it, it is, and it's, it's, so it's been extremely heartening to see the, the college get involved and in trying to develop yeah. it further and their GPs embrace it. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, some of the stories from Simon's um, practicing on his own are incredible in terms of patients who've changed their lives through Park Run. And it sounds dramatic to say that, but they literally have, you know, you're talking about patients who are coming in to see the GP every you know, month or so. And really, really struggling with their mood, with high blood pressure, with diabetes medications, just literally coming off all of them because they found Park Run. And those kind of other social prescribing things that we could be thinking about, I think, are key in terms of taking some of the burden off these kind of non-communicable diseases that we're seeing so much of in clinical practice every day. Yeah. So um, you kind of, I know you were, you were involved in the sports and exercise medicine sort of side of things, but you perhaps were less yep. enthusiastic about the sort of the elite sports side and got more involved in the lifestyle yeah. side. And you've been involved with the, the British Lifestyle, uh, the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. And I was wondering if you could yeah. tell us a wee bit more about that. Yeah, of course. So with, I'm, I'm one of the trustees and one of the directors of the British Society. I got involved about a year and a bit ago now. And essentially, we are a group of evidence-based individuals who are trying to push lifestyle medicine, which is using lifestyle evidence-based interventions to reduce um, and reverse and even in some case kind of prevent disease. Now, there are lots of kind of avenues in which we're doing that. So, for instance, we're doing lots of education in kind of uh, medical school, school settings. We've set up the Undergraduate Lifestyle Medicine Society. We've also got lots of other kind of plans in terms of future conferences. And that's mainly trying to hit clinicians who are already maybe enthusiastic about this and just to increase their education around evidence-based lifestyle medicine. I think the fear with lifestyle medicine is it can be seen by some as maybe a bit fluffy and maybe by some as not so evidence-based. And I think that's one thing that I know I'm very passionate about and society very passionate about in that what we are trying to encourage is, you know, evidence-based to the core. Um, and it's real methods which can actually really help patients make make changes. Um, now, that does have difficulties at times. I think nutrition is a really big aspect of this, which is so controversial. I'd say the British Society has got kind of, uh, quite an open view in terms of nutrition, in terms of we see whole foods as being key, but we're not kind of completely 
anti any diet. Um, but as long as kind of whole foods are involved and it is a diet which people can adhere to and it's a healthy diet, then we're pretty happy with. Um, so apart from that, it's just a kind of general evidence based around kind of your sleep, your relaxation, physical activity, and then of course, kind of community aspects of things as well. And there are lots of projects kind of running. One of the ones that I'm really excited about is we're going to be running a uh, coaching qualification, which is all going to be around lifestyle. And I personally feel that that could be a real way for us to really encourage clinicians to, again, enhance their motivational interviewing skills around lifestyle and really help patients make a big change. We've also got the diploma, which is a diploma in lifestyle medicine, which is the international diploma which we run. And again, a really good way to get some real grounding in knowledge in lifestyle medicine. We run that every summer. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a summary of what we're doing. There are lots of kind of plans for conferences this year, so definitely look out for them. We've got things on movement, things on nutrition, things on just general lifestyle interventions. But as I said, the key for all of it for us is that it is evidence-based and um, that is there. So, yeah, cool. I, I mean, uh, there's a really um, exciting aspect. I think it ticks a lot of boxes for healthcare professionals who have been feeling a bit frustrated with over-medicalization, over-diagnosis, you know, this kind of emphasis on medication and prescribing all the time, prescribing medication all the time. Um, it feels like it's doing a lot to help address that kind of because that seems to have led into feelings of burnout for a lot of people. Um, and the, the British yeah. the, that sort of lifestyle medicine approach has been quite reinvigorating for a lot of them, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the whole idea is that we're looking at the cause of why something is going wrong. I think there's a really good model that the Lifestyle Medicine Society and other countries, especially Australia, have used where they kind of look at, yeah, you've got your diseases, you've got risk factors, which are kind of the warning signs that we're heading over to the disease. But just upstream of those risk factors, you've got these kind of upstream causes. So the kind of first set of upstream causes are things like nutrition, inactivity, kind of smoking maybe, or environments. Um, and then upstream to that is your kind of your stress and your anxiety and depression or low mood or other things, or even your kind of economic state. And these kind of worries or concerns, these underlying causes, contribute to poor nutrition choices, poor diet choices, poor ideas around kind of inactivity and things. And that leads us further along down the stream into those diseases and those risk factors. If we can address the cause behind what is actually going on, then you'd hope we wouldn't get to the disease that's further down the line. And as you say, I think that's invigorating for many practitioners. Because instead of just handing out pills so that they're further down the management line in terms of the next pill on the on the the, the choice, instead they're managing to actually make people feel a bit better. I mean, I can't personally say I've many have many patients who've gone on to the next hypertension medication and felt a thousand times better because their blood pressure is a little bit lower. Whereas those who come back because they've become active and actually reduce their blood pressure through lifestyle interventions, they feel great. It feels so much better. And that's ultimately why we all went into medicine or, you know, trying to help people. Like it's the classic answer in medical school and in, in our interviews. But it is why we went into it. We want to help people feel better. We want to help them feel healthier. We don't want to help them get onto the next pill. So I think it is kind of hitting that. And I think because of that, we've got a lot of enthusiasm behind us. Um, but I think for that reason, we need to make sure that enthusiasm is curved into actual change. And that change is going to have to be through undergraduate kind of curriculums through postgraduate curriculums even from like a political point of view trying to hit the politicians in terms of trying to make sure they are realizing how important it is that we focus our public health messages 
on addressing lifestyle issues, which in the long run will massively reduce kind of risk of disease um, and risk of other conditions like that. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that. Obviously, I'm involved in the undergrad side here at the medical school. Um, <clears throat> um, one of the things that really interested me was the you said you've been described as being the criticisms of being a bit fluffy. That actually hadn't really occurred to me with that. I thought because there's plenty of evidence around about lifestyle interventions and probably pretty pretty darn robust evidence. My one my criticism, <laughs> if I would throw that yeah, out, is my concern is it's been has always been more about kind of the quinoa and kale crowd, which is that kind of that yeah. there's a kind of a middle class middle class kind of. Um, righteousness almost to it, which makes it very difficult. And you talked, you talk very eloquently there about the upstream measures, which are so important to improve public health across the whole population. But my slight perception has been that at times lifestyle medicine has come across as being something that's very much for kind of people who are already active, people who already got a good idea yeah. about what to eat. And it's not getting at those groups where the kind of the, the health effects and the obesity, et cetera, are having the worst impact. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, really. And actually, one of the first things I've, I've run a, a few conferences now on lifestyle medicine not with the British Society um, and done a couple of the RCGP. And one of the first talks that I do is looking at two or three case studies of the kind of patients that we're targeting with lifestyle medicine, because I think you're completely right. I think when we think about lifestyle medicine, we can think about the social media crowd of lifestyle medicine, your kale, your your chicken salad with avocado, your perfect workout with your yoga mat and the light weights in the, in the corner. You know, that kind of stuff for me isn't lifestyle medicine. Now, we've got to remember that the clinicians which are drawn to lifestyle medicine often do do those things, and that's fine. And we're, we're very accepting of that. But you're right. Lifestyle medicine is about changing lives of people who need to make lifestyle changes. Now, that is across the board. As you, as you say, it's not just for those who are kind of switching their diet up slightly who are already living quite healthy lives. The case example that I give is actually um, kind of looking at kind of smoking, for an example, a lady who decides that, so again, it was motivational interviewing that was used in the case of a clinician. In fact, it was from um, Dr. Tobin's clinic. Um, and he was talking about a patient who he managed to help with kind of smoking and stopping smoking. And they changed their life through it. You know, they were able to afford a holiday they were never able to afford before that. And it changed their life. So I think you're right. I think we need to be careful about the way lifestyle medicine is framed and the way that it is seen. But I would say that very much when we as a society are trying to run events, we do try and push the fact that this isn't just for you know the middle class who are kind of very much maybe already on board with this kind of stuff. We're really trying to target those who need to make changes to reduce that risk and reduce that burden that we're seeing every day in clinics. Yeah, and I think it's a superficial perception that I have had or one might have, because if you've only got to look at the list of people involved, you can see that they're they're drawn from all the you know the healthcare professionals that are involved are drawn from all sorts of communities, and they have particular interests in inequalities and as well. So there's, I do think you know I'm you know you're, you're you know the organisation well, but I think that's that would seem to be a real PR risk for you that that kind of there's a danger that that kind of that those difficult discussions about how to get policies which really address inequalities. Um, yeah, uh, definitely. Getting stuck into them. And it's something we discuss quite a lot in terms of when we do run events, we try and make sure that that is highlighted every time because I think we need to make sure that we are addressing that and also making sure that people who come to our events, I think we're not just talking about hitting a certain target group. There are so many target groups we need to hit. And actually, it's not the ones who are already, already engaging with this to a, a lesser or greater extent especially, you know, when we go back to the whole social media thing, 
I often feel not demoralized, but a little bit kind of frustrated with social media that it's just a bit of an echo chamber in whatever ever chamber you're in. Whereas actually, if we really want to further this message, social media probably, to a certain extent, isn't really going to be the main medium. And we need to think about other ways in which we can get it out. Because otherwise, I think you're right, it can be seen as just this very much stereotypical middle class thing, which ultimately isn't going to make a difference, which sadly, well, not sadly, it's not going to make a difference, so it's not worth wasting our time with. We want to make sure that this lifestyle medicine message is making a difference. You know, I think that's the way to go. The social media thing, I think, is really interesting that you talk about there because um, uh, the, I was just reading a paper before we had a chat, actually, about the, about orthorexia. And I was looking at what evidence mm. there was about orthorexia. And I was chatting to Rini McGregor just recently as well on the podcast. And she talks yeah. about this quite a lot. And the paper I was looking up was that it suggested that something like, and I think it was a study of about 600, you probably know that you might well know the paper, it was about 680 people. And they, they were people that followed healthy food um, uh, accounts on Instagram. And they discovered, now I know, I know that, I should add the caveat first, that orthorexia isn't a DSM-5 condition. And so it's not officially diagnosable, but they do have a kind of a checklist of up to what the or, 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 ortho 15 or something. I forget what it's called exactly. Um, but they found that 49% of them met the criteria according to that checklist for orthorexia compared to like less than 1%. So there's this insanely worrying clean eating kind of you know thing that goes across places like Instagram that makes you really anxious about using something like that as a social medium to get across um, healthy living messages. Yeah, I think I think Instagram can do a lot of good, and I think it's got lots of positives. But I think, as you say, there it's a dangerous medium, and I think it's one that you see certain characters and certain people within that who are giving very unevidence based advice, and you know the amount of stuff you see about certain detoxes or anything about the Kardashians saying anything nutrition wise, you just need to flat out ignore. But the problem is it. That her following or their following is absolutely enormous and it will reach so many people. So, yeah, I think it's interesting what you say there about the number that we're hitting the criteria for orthorexia. I'm not sure because I know that Rini is working on the uh, DSM uh, criteria currently and I know that they found it very hard to kind of narrow it down. I think it's, it's a very interesting field that's developing and I think it definitely does raise the awareness of certain things that, you know, maybe you, you see from day to day a lot more now boosted by that whole Instagram social media world. For me, it's when it becomes an obsession. I think Rini puts this very well when she talks about it as well. Yeah, she does. When, 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 it talk, when it's like an actual obsession and being unable to kind of deviate from that way of eating, that's, I think, when alarm bells need to really start to, to, to rise up. Now, I think you can have some people who are very careful with their diet. I think, you know, some people are very aware of their diet. And I think that's okay I've got other friends who were very strict about counting their calories. Now, I've got friends who'd say, oh, that's really disordered eating. That's really, that's really dangerous. But for some people, that's, that's the way they keep in check. And again, that's for a variety of reasons. Maybe in the before they used to eat an awful lot and they've lost weight now and their kind of hunger and satiety signals aren't quite what they used to be. So therefore, actually eating in a way where they can kind of measure roughly what they're having because they don't have those internal signals anymore can be quite useful. So I think it, we need to be careful about how we categorize those kind of diagnoses. Um, but I think an awareness of when something feels like an obsession, or when it's all-consuming, and an un- inability to deviate from something like that, I think is definitely something that 
it sounds like it's being worked into this criteria because I think for me, that's when I start to worry and when I'd start to think we're going to need to get someone who specialised in eating disorders to, to help with this person. Yeah, really talked about that quite carefully, that it was very much about the, the and highlighting the obsessive elements. So the people who are just, you know, changing their diets or being a bit careful about certain food groups, you can't, you wouldn't go banging a label of orthorexia on them. There's very much a set of, you know, um, she, she highlighted very well that kind of big crossover with obsessive compulsive disorder that exists and mm. how those obsessive traits are so important to so those people that have that who might meet the DSM, a potentially future DSM kind of diagnosis of orthorexia nervosa. That's obviously clearly a key feature. So I, I should ask you, yeah. I should ask you, John. So I know you've done some extra qualifications in nutrition beyond the kind of all of the usual GP qualifications and things we have to get. Um, yeah. So if you had a, you know, you, you were just starting to hint at it there. If you were to, the Kardashians in particular, if you were to let rip yeah. a particular dietary fad, which one would you take a pun <laughs> Um Oh, man, really put me on the spot there. I don't know. I, I think... Um, which one really which one really sets your blood pressure, you know, raging <laughs> when you see it talked about? So it's not even a particular one. It's it's the way that people talk about their own diet. I think, and it doesn't matter which one it is. I think it's when people go off on one about their own diet and that being the only way. I think that's what gets my blood pressure really going because the same way I've talked about activity, there's no one size fits all. And for some people, certain diets work really, really well. And that's great. And that's really good for them. But it's not good for everyone. So if you're someone who is either criticizing other diets because yours is the only way or saying the only way to do healthy eating is, is this one way, I think that's what very much frustrates me, especially when they're doing it on the back of an N equals one. They found their own experience and they found it helped or they've had a really good success story. And that's fantastic for them. And I don't want to criticize that at all. But I think then, you know, going on this crusade to convince everyone to eat that way, I think can be really unhelpful. And I think actually, sometimes it can be the kind of thing which sets off these kind of disordered eating patterns in false ideas around a certain diet. And I think that can be really dangerous, especially when I fear some diets can very much be manipulated to actually not be that healthy. Um because I think in done certain diets done in certain ways, and that's clean eating, that's low carb, that's keto. If they're not done in a certain way, you can actually become quite deficient in certain things, um, or concentrate on animal fats the whole time, which we know aren't great for you. So, you know, it's that really boring word of, of balance most of the time and moderation, which no one likes, and it's not sexy and it doesn't sell books. But ultimately, that is for me one of the main ways that. You know, we need to help people. For some people, it's different. You know, there there are certain situations. So for epilepsy, we know that the ketogenic diet has got some proven benefits. For those who are diabetic, actually a low-carb diet can be very helpful. Um, you know, we could debate kind of very low-calorie diets and all that as well. But ultimately, there are some situations where certain diets work. But that still doesn't mean that we have to use that in that person. And it still doesn't mean we need to say it's the only way of doing something because people are so individual. And I think that's one key thing about nutrition. So I think I say that would be the thing that would be are winding you, me up. You're, fa- you're far too nice, John. You can tell you're obviously a GP. Absolutely. Just you're really <laughs> <laughs> So well, I, would say, I, I think you're right, though. It's kind of it's, none of these diets are necessarily bad as such. There is all, you know, that's not the case. But um, it's when you get these enormously polarized views on social media and that if you're not doing 5-2, you're a total loser. And this is the only way to achieve X goal or Y goal target. 
and all the rest. And there, but there are clearly some, there's some evidence around the fringes, as you described there, about low carb diets and diabetics and you know bits and pieces, isn't there? But it's when you get that super polarized view, and that's very much a modern phenomenon, I think, isn't it? Well, I must be, you know, with kind of social media. Yeah, I think social media is definitely driving a lot of it, and I think it can be quite dangerous and just very, very unhelpful, especially when you see the posts of food. When you see these guys who are going down one specific diet line, you look at that, you know, that plate of food, you just think, that isn't a healthy plate of food. Like, you're saying that's the only way to eat and that's the way you're eating and you're in great shape. Fair enough, that's fine. But you're not actually encouraging a healthy diet. And I just think that's, that's when I start to get really worried. Yeah. Interestingly, um, I think you're right about moderation. And I was just chatting to um, Anita Bean uh, last week as mm-hmm. well about vegetarian diets. And, that, you know, that's her message. It's about moderation. And we, we, ch- we talked about the fact that vegetarian diets you know the overall evidence is pretty decent for them being slightly better for you than many other diets however it's perfectly possible to eat a really crappy vegetarian diet as well um, yeah. and you know um, chock full of processed food and really unhealthy so it's it's not a magical panacea in terms of i'll just go vegetarian and that's me fixed um at all i I never forget one of the patients who i met who told me they were vegetarian and I was talking about dietary things, and I and I said, "Oh, you know, what's your diet like?" She said, "Oh, yeah, I've got a pretty good diet. I'm a vegetarian." I was like, "Oh, great! What kind of what kind of vegetables do you like?" Oh, I don't eat vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, so, "So, what do you eat?" And she was like, "Oh, I just eat, you know, the snack bars, like um, like healthy cereals and all this kind of stuff." And you're just like, "Oh gosh, uh, yeah, you've not quite got this here." <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, the moderation thing is really dull as well, but I do think, um, and that's also Rini's message as well, I think, in her book, Orthorexia, is about, it's all about moderation. And so there, there is, you know, maybe you should rebrand yourself as the British Society of Lifestyle Moderation. It's, moderation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> rather than medicine, and try to big it up, because I do think that's the thing. It's all about kind of just, you know, the, the extremes of kind of evidence for very low carb or very high fat or whatever diet is. The, the true answer, the best answer is probably somewhere in the middle. I don't know if the uh, name will catch on, but uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm putting it forward now. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put it forward and see if you, <laughs> I don't yeah. think it will catch on. And I think, you know, speaking as somebody who's um, podcasting about lifestyle and other things, uh, sadly, the case is that almost always the answer ends up being moderation in some shape or form. Uh, John, that has been really, it's really excellent. Where can we find out a bit more about you online, a bit more about the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine as well? Yeah. So um, British Society of Lifestyle Medicine is bslm.org. Um, and you go to the website, you can become a member, and um, there's loads of resources on there as well. We're just currently updating our website, actually, so maybe just keep eyes on that in the new year, because we're hoping to make a resource page for both uh, practitioners and for patients, which will be free of access, but there'll also be some more available options if you become a member. Um, for myself, I've got my Instagram account, which is at Health and Fitness Doctor, um, and I am developing a website, but that is taking a little bit longer and that will hopefully be out in the new year but um and that will hopefully have some similar resources in terms of gp relevant information but also patient relevant information um but kind of handouts and things like that but a lot of that is pending so keep asking for that yeah well as soon as that appears we'll make sure i get a link up to it as well on the blokeology so to make sure that people can find that um john thank you so much for taking the time oh thank you cheers Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blokeology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. 
it would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show if you've got anything out of it if you could pop over to apple podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating that would be incredibly helpful and any feedback is very welcome and so you can leave comments send email or make contact via twitter facebook and the usual social media channels all of which can be found at blokeology.io thanks again 